Let's, uh, let's remain standing, if you would, for the reading of God's holy word. Today's text comes from Psalm 139, verses 1 through 6. And the word of the Lord says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You stretch out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. The word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. You can be seated. A while back, I had an online discussion about politics with someone on, on Facebook. And this was back during the last presidential election. And this individual, who's in his 20s, uh, described himself as a diehard socialist. Uh, now, I'm not one to talk about politics a lot from the pulpit, but I have spent a good deal of time in Eastern Europe, and I've seen the negative impact that a socialistic government without proper checks and balances can have on people. And I've studied and I've read about that system of government, and ultimately, I don't find it to be the perfect system that some people today claim that it is. And I was discussing that with this fella, who, like I said, is in his late 20s, and he's really rabidly defending uh, this, this idea of socialism and how it was the best government possible. And I was challenging him to talk a little deeper about the topic, and I talked about some historic examples of socialism that had taken bad terms, turns, and before long, it became really evident that he really didn't know a lot about the system of government. He was mostly just repeating sound bites and headlines that he had seen online. So we're about 20 or 30 minutes into this conversation, and I ask him, what books have you read about socialism? Because I'd like to read one or two of them myself to see if I can understand where you're coming from. And he responded, and he said, duh, it's 2016. We don't need books anymore. We have the internet to educate us. We all think that way sometimes, I think. I mean, we read the headline of an article that somebody posts on social media, and we press like. Even though we might not read anything but the headline, we'll say we'll like it. We'll even engage in a debate about the article without reading it. And people will form entire worldviews based on tweets. Uh, they'll become experts on politics and religion and human sexuality and baseball and Hollywood gossip uh, on, on a phrase of 280 characters or less. We watch HGTV. For those of us who are older, like me, we watch HGTV and we can watch one episode of Fixer Upper and we know how to do any home renovation project. And we are absolutely certain that we have enough knowledge to demo and rebuild our bathroom in a weekend because we watched it on the show and it just took Chip and Joanna an hour to do it. So because of mass media and the internet, we become people that believe they know it all. We know it all. And if we don't know it all, we can just Google it, right? 
Uh, I think sometimes we become a culture that's like that kid in class that raises their hand for every question. And, and they might be a legitimately smart kid, or they might not be, but they really like showing off how much they know, or at least the attention they receive from acting like they know all the answers. And, and we've all either been that kid in class, or we've had a kid like that in class that dominated the conversation. So, the great English theologian John Stott looked at Psalm 139, and he divided it into three sections that painted portraits of attributes of God, three different attributes of God. And in one section, he says it talks about God's omnipresence. He's everywhere, all the time. In another section, he talks about his omnipotence. He's all-powerful. And today, we're going to look at the first six verses, the first section of this psalm, and they paint a picture of God's omniscience. He has utter and complete knowledge of everything. And if you look at the verbs in today's text, O Lord, you've searched me, you've known me, you know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. And you're acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. So God is involved in every aspect of our lives. He knows everywhere we've ever been, everything we've ever said, everything we've ever thought, everywhere we'll ever go. And he lays his hand upon us. He's always there. He's always involved. He's always engaged. So the psalmist writes that thinking about this is too wonderful for him. It's too much for him to wrap his brain around. It blows his mind. So God is omniscient, which means he's all-knowing. Ray Pritchard wrote, this means that God knows all things past, present, and future. Every reality and every possibility. And he knows them all at the same time. And he not only knows what was and what is, he also knows what will be. More than that, he knows everything that could be, but is not. So we have scriptural proof of God's omniscience, that he knows everything. 1 Samuel 2, 3 says the Lord is a God of knowledge. 1 John three twenty says God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Psalm 147.5 says, Great is our Lord and abundant in mercy and power. His understanding is beyond measure. But we're just scratching the surface of it with those three verses. There's some broad implications of having a God that knows everything. So consider this. Luke 12.7 says He numbers the hairs on your head. That's not so much a challenge when God's looking at me. With Casey Cooper, that's a big deal. He's got a lot more hair to deal with. But God knows how much hair's on my head, and he knows how much hair's on Casey's head. Uh, 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 Psalm 139.4, he knows our words before you speak them. Psalm 139.2, he knows your thoughts before you think them. Matthew 6, 8. He knows your prayers before you pray them. Psalm 139, verses 2 and 3. He knows when you get up in the morning, and He knows when you go to bed at night. Psalm 139, 16. He knows everything you're going to do tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, and every moment of every day until the moment of your death. Matthew 12, 36. He records every word you say, and someday He's going to hold you into account for every word. 
Luke 12, 3. He sees everything you do in secret, both the good and the bad. Every whispered word, he knows it. So it's no wonder that David used language that implied fence building as he thought about God's omniscience. In Psalm 139.5, he wrote, You hem me in behind and before. You've laid your hand upon me. David feels totally surrounded and encompassed by God's knowledge of every word he speaks, every thought he has, every step he takes. So God knows everything. Now, we like to think we know everything, but God does know everything. So there's some facts I want you to consider today, four facts about God's omniscience that I want you to take home and dwell on this week. The first one is this. Our knowledge depends on what we learn. God's knowledge is independent. He knows everything, so he doesn't have to learn. My dad was probably one of the smartest people I've ever met. He did not have much in the way of formal education, but he knew how to do things. And I think that's something that's kind of lost in my generation. I don't know how to do much. I mean, like, I can make a pot of spaghetti, but when it comes to changing the oil in Brittany's van, I'm pretty useless. When it comes to building something, I'm pretty useless. When it comes to repairing something, I'm pretty useless. But so my dad was really handy and he knew how to do a lot of things. He knew how to build things and he knew how to farm and he knew how to hunt and he knew how to do a lot of really constructive things. But now remember that HGTV thing I mentioned earlier back when HGTV got really popular back in the late 1990s. I would watch it all the time, and I bought a house that was a fixer-upper. I grew up in the Sanford community, and and all of y'all, I think, probably know where that's at, just outside of Athens, but it's the country, and and I decided to move to town, so I bought a house in Isla, uh, um, and uh, which is not it's the country, too, but I, I bought one, and it was a fixer-upper because I thought, I can handle this. I can do this. And in the long run, I made the house nicer than it was when I bought it, but I literally spent more fixing the mistakes I made while trying to fix things that needed fixing than it should have cost to fix them in the first place. In other words, anything that required any special knowledge or skill, I wound up fixing it twice. The house renovation was a painful learning process, and it is a costly learning process, studying how to do something, attempting to do it, and then correcting my errors, and sometimes hiring somebody else to do it after my errors just seemed to pile up on top of each other. God doesn't learn from studying, though, because he holds all knowledge already. He doesn't learn from his mistakes because he doesn't make mistakes. You can't teach God so he'll change his mind. Because he is immutable in nature. He never changes. A.W. Tozier wrote this about the depths of the knowledge of God. He wrote, God knows instantly and effortlessly all matters and all matters. All mind and every mind. All law and every law. All relations, all causes, all thoughts, all mysteries, all enigmas, all feeling, all desires... Every unmuttered secret, 
all thrones and dominions, all personalities, all things visible and invisible, in heaven and in earth, motion, space, time, life, death, good, evil, heaven and hell. Because God knows all things perfectly, He knows all things equally well. He never discovers anything. He is never surprised. He is never amazed. He never wonders about anything, nor does he seek information. My cornbread translation of what A.W. Tozer wrote is this. God doesn't have to Google anything because he knows everything. Second, I want you to consider that our knowledge is limited, but God's knowledge is infinite. God doesn't have to respond to problems because he is aware of what has happened in the past and what is happening in the present and what will happen in the future. He is not a reactionary God. Adrian Rogers once said, Did it ever occur to you that nothing occurs to God? God never wakes up in the morning and says, Oh man, I've got an idea. God didn't look down at the world one day and notice that all these sinners were dying and going to hell and say, Oh, snap, i got to do something about this. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. When Paul wrote that phrase, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, what it means is God had it planned all along. From before the world was made, God knew that people would sin and fall short. And He had a plan to redeem mankind and to save them from their sins through the blood of Christ on the cross so that men could be forgiven for what they've done wrong and instead of fearing God, enjoy God forever. God's knowledge is infinite. Next, God knows us better than we know ourselves. It's the next fact I want us to consider. We as Christians often play this cultural game of personal promotion and self-righteousness. And we compare ourselves to, to others and play the at least I game. In Luke chapter 18, there's a parable that Jesus told about a Pharisee or a very religious person, a good church-going man, and a tax collector who was a notorious sinner. And the Pharisee prays a prayer that is this incredible picture of self-esteem on steroids. He says, The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing far off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, this man, this tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. 
I like the phrasing from the New King James Version of the Bible in this text. It said, the Pharisee prayed thus with himself. It doesn't mention that he's praying to God. He's praying with himself. Essentially, to himself. Giving himself a pep talk. And in fact, in his prayer, he only mentions God one time. And he mentions himself five times. Thank you, God, that I am better than anybody else. That I am superior. Thank you, God, that I am not like that sinner sitting over there. I fast twice a week. I go to church every Sunday and I give a tenth of everything I get. This prayer to himself is his strategy to build himself up in his own eyes, to build up his own religious superiority, his own religious excellence through a religious performance record. But here's the problem with that. The problem is you can't fool God. He is omniscient. He knows every fiber of your being and every intention of your soul. Jesus looks beyond all those spiritual cosmetics and he examines the heart. The passage closes with Jesus saying, This man, the sinner, who wasn't afraid to admit that he was a sinner, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And we're guilty of that sometimes. We're guilty of using those at least I statements. To build ourselves up. We might say, I may not be good looking, but at least I'm smarter than Johnny House back there. Or Johnny might say, I may not be smart, but at least I'm good looking. Or uh, we might say, I may, I may gossip, but at least I don't smoke dope. Or I might cheat on my wife or look at some porn, but at least I'm not gay. These at least eyes are our prayers to ourselves to tell ourselves that we're okay. But you can't fool God. God knows the heart. You can't bargain with God. He doesn't compare your sins to the sins of others. He doesn't look at Casey over there and say, Well, you know that Casey? He cusses up a storm and he gossips like a washerwoman. But at least he's not like Lisa wearing short shorts and tube tops when she goes shopping at Tiny Town. I don't know if she's done that or not. They have a camera down there. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> God is not forgetful. He's not forgetful. Sometimes we sin and the memory of our sin and the associated guilt might fade. But God's knowledge is eternal. He never forgets. When David prayed in Psalm 139.23, Search me, O God, and know my heart. He's acknowledging that God knows things about us that we don't even know about ourselves. Psalm 19.12 says, Who can discern his errors? Who can figure out their own problems? He says, Forgive my hidden faults. I read once, R.C. Sproul wrote it, that God's greatest mercy is not revealing to us the full depth of our depravity and not showing us the full weight of our sinfulness. Because if he did, we'd be crushed with guilt and sorrow. God knows us better than we know ourselves. 
And the final thing I want you to take home today is this. Omniscience is the basis of God's judgment. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 36, men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. Job 34, 21 says his eyes are on the ways of men. He sees their every step. And Jeremiah 16, 17 drives the point home when it says, my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from me nor is their sin concealed from my eyes. Omniscience means that God knows and considers every word, every thought, every action. And Galatians 6, 7 says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. There is no fool in God. God knows everything. And this sounds terrifying. It's awful to think that our standing in God could depend on our own spiritual track record, on our own feeble at least eyes. But the good news of the gospel is if you trust in Jesus Christ, it doesn't depend on your own track record. The only thing you need to have Jesus as your Savior is need. Trust in His goodness. Trust in His love. Psalm 147.11 says that God takes pleasure in those who hope in His love. 1 John 4.15-17 says, We have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. And whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe, to trust the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in Him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment so on the day of judgment when we pass from this life into eternity and we stand before God I believe that he will ask us one question and one question alone and that question will not be did you live a perfect life did you follow all the rules did you follow the big Baptist rules don't drink, don't dip, don't smoke, don't chew, don't kiss the girls that do. Did you go to church every Sunday? Did you avoid the major sins? God is omniscient. And He already knows the answers to those questions. But I believe that God will ask one question and one question alone. Did you believe that I love? That I loved you so much that out of my goodness I gave my son to die on the cross as punishment for all of your sins. The public ones and the private ones. And because of my love your slate is wiped clean.
God knew us and loved us before the world was made. He knew us and loved us before we were born. His knowledge and His love preceded us and meets us no matter where we find ourselves. And it goes with us every step as we move forward. His knowledge of us is encyclopedic. It is utterly complete. It is completely undeserved. And it is recklessly compassionate. He knew us and He loved us a million years before we were born. And He will know us and love us a million years from now in the same way. And we will only have begun to know Him. I've heard intimacy defined as knowing someone fully and being fully known by that person with no fear of rejection. God knows us as we really are with our stinginess and our shallowness and our anxiety and our fears and unfaithfulness, our secrets we try to keep hidden in the dark. God knows that we have moments where we dabble with addiction and bad habits and ugly thoughts about other people. God knows my true self. He knows that I get depressed because I eat too much and that when I eat too much, I get depressed and that I wake up and worry about things that really don't matter at 4 a.m. on the dot every morning and that I have moments when I'm intolerant of other people's ideas and that I preach that He loves me and He loves me unconditionally. And then sometimes I wonder if He cares for me at all. And that sometimes I feel guilty about sinning. And sometimes I just enjoy sinning. And sometimes I love people. And sometimes I don't want anything to do with anybody. God knows that I fight with my wife and I yell at my kids. And He knows that I really, really hate boiled okra. It talks to you when you eat it can't stand it. Every one of us has a light side and a dark side. And God knows both. Martin Luther wrote that he wasn't half a man. That he was fully a saint and fully a sinner. And that's what we are as Christians. People who love God and who still mess up. Now, the world calls that a hypocrite, but God calls it a saint. Thomas Merton wrote, A saint is not someone who is good, but who experiences the goodness of God. My deepest awareness of myself is that I am fully known by Jesus Christ, and for some reason that fully escapes my intellect I'm also deeply loved by Jesus Christ and I've done nothing to earn it or deserve it some people make the mistake of believing that Jesus will only care for those who live a perfect spotless life but the fact is you don't need to create a spotless space for Jesus to inhabit he doesn't expect you to be perfectly clean in order to win his love when Jesus said blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be filled he didn't mean you better be righteous you better get it right or I won't fill you with my spirit. 
what he meant. He, he never said that. He never said, blessed are those who are perfect, for they will be filled. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are those who understand that they're sinful and they need God. They need a Savior. He doesn't wait for us to make our own hearts pure or to put down the bottle for good or to clean up our own act or to start attending church more regularly. He knows all of our junk and Jesus is still there right smack in the middle of our messy, sinful lives and He knows every secret, every wrong turn and every bad move and He still loves you. It's too wonderful to think about. The ultimate evidence of all of this, the fact that God knows you fully and still loves you completely, is the cross. Luther called Jesus the crucified God. And there he hung between two guilty convicted thieves in the middle of all the ugliness and corruption and injustice and hatred that the world could offer. And Jesus' response to being murdered by the very people He came to save was, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus knows us fully and He loves you all the same. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, God does not love some ideal person, but rather human beings just as we are. I'm going to ask our musicians to come. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then when we come to the end of our race... We'll know Him face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Rest in that hope. Jesus knows you fully, and He loves you completely. And one day, you will fully know Him. And you'll understand the breadth and the length and the height and depth of His love. The love of Jesus Christ that surpasses all knowledge.